You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. Well, in the first portion of John chapter 11, we saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the grave. And really what is then going to occur and what then unfolds is a rejection of Christ to the extreme that the religious leaders are going to plan for his death, combined with then also the response of many of the people of great belief in Christ. And so I think in one sense what you could say is that the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead was in so many ways the straw that broke the camel's back in the sense that people either rushed to belief or like we'll see with the religious leaders here at the end of John chapter 11, they rushed into uh, rejection and hard-heartedness against Christ. And so in response to all of this, it says in verse 45, that many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so you have this pocket of people, many Jews, many who had come from Jerusalem, and it says in verse 45, they had come with Mary. They're they're attracted to Mary. She has many friends, and as you read about Mary and who she was and what she was like, it's easy to understand why she was an attractive kind of person. Uh, But some of these people did not believe, and they went to the Pharisees and told the Pharisees about what Jesus had done. Now, this could have been a little bit of, you know, belief, but it appears like John is contrasting this group with the previous group. There were those that received him and those who were either angered by it, frustrated by it, and go to the Pharisees in order to tell them of these things that Jesus is doing. So the chief priests, verse 47, and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so we see this response from the religious leaders. Now, a couple of things I want you to see in this is First of all, I want you to see how these parties of religious leaders who were normally opposed to one another. You had the Pharisees, but then you had a very prominent and popular group called the Sadducees, who were in great authority in the council or the Sanhedrin and who were uh, very political in nature and, and worked hand in hand with Rome in many ways. You had these groups coming together in order to figure out what to do Uh, about Jesus. Of course, this reminds us a little bit of later on in the life of Christ, after he's arrested, committed by the religious leaders to Pontius Pilate, and how Pontius Pilate and Herod on that day, actually the Bible says, became friends as they tried to determine what to do with Christ. Previously, they had been enemies, but from that point forward, they had operated as friends because of their mutual animosity towards Christ. And all of this, the religious leaders, Pilate and Herod, all of this is a fulfillment, at least partially, of the prophecy in Psalm 2. It says in verse 1 of Psalm 2, Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so what he's saying there as a psalmist is that a day is coming where the kings of the earth and the rulers, they're going to come together to resist God, the Lord, and his anointed, God the Son, the Christ, and uh, seek to cast off his bonds. And that's what we're seeing a picture of here in the religious leaders. But also, notice their attitude. They say, if we let him go on like this, which is ridiculous, he's just healing and blessing and helping, but they say, if we let him go on like this, the Romans will come. They'll, be, they'll realize that things are stirring in our nation, and they will take away our position, and they will take away our nation, they say. Uh, this is so opposite to the attitude of John the Baptist, who, when Jesus began to baptize more people than he and his disciples had baptized, he said, a man can only receive that which is given to him from heaven. In other words, he just said, you know, I can only have the authority, the influence, the position that God himself gives to me. But these religious leaders has had another attitude entirely. They didn't see this as something that God could give and also take away. They saw their position as something they needed to strive to maintain. But one of them, you know, here they are debating. They're debating, what should we do about him? What are we to do? That's the question, verse 47. What are we to do? But one of them, verse 49, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, uh, said to them, and, and he was the high priest that year because... Uh, Rome, because of their domination over Israel, had gotten to a place where they would be involved in the appointing of high priests, even though the Old Testament said a high priest would serve for life. At this time, the Romans would be involved. And so Caiaphas held the office for quite some time. But here, it's just mentioned that he was the high priest that particular year. And he said to these guys, they're all trying to decide what are we to do. And he said, you don't know anything at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And so Caiaphas rolls in and, and his statement is very clear. He's saying, listen, it's ridiculous that we are even debating this. You're trying to figure out what should we do. I know the answer and I've already declared it. He must die. He must perish so that we as a people can continue to exist as a nation in some way, shape, or form. Now, there's great irony in this, of course, because as they did kill Christ, as they uh, did usher him to his death, of course, Jesus was laying down his life as a, as a sacrifice for the world. But, but, but as that event occurred, uh, within you know a generation, Jews would seek to fight against the Romans and their nation would be taken away from them and their place would be destroyed. And so in one sense, you could say, well, it was only after Christ was killed that your nation and your place also were taken from you. And uh, they, of course, expected an opposite result. But in verse 51, John includes this little note. He says, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. 
And so John includes for us this little note. He says, listen, this statement from Caiaphas actually wasn't from his own mind, but it was a prophecy. And uh, he probably didn't know it. He was just a simple instrument in the hand of God. But there was a double meaning, of course, in the words that he spoke. And the double meaning is very simple. The second part of it was that Jesus would die for the nation. Now, when he said that, he meant he needs to die so that as a nation, Jewishly, we can still exist. But of course, in the mind and heart of God, this was the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That he would die for, in place of, and instead of the nation. And, as it says in verse 22, not for the nation only, but to gather in one all the children of God who are scattered abroad. And so, the salvation of God to the Gentile world, Jesus would atone for the sin of man. And so, from that day on, uh, after hearing Caiaphas's speech, they began to plan for his death. Previously, they picked up rocks to stone him at various moments of emotional, guttural response to what Christ had been saying. But here, they actually make plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, verse 54, no longer walked openly among the Jews. More than likely, somebody tipped him off. There were sympathizers on the Sanhedrin, a Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus perhaps had somehow leaked information to Jesus's camp. So he no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, about 15 miles away. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, verse 55, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Uh, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So you see just sort of the mood there in Israel at the moment and in Jerusalem at the moment. You have a huge group of people coming up for the Passover the historian Josephus, who recorded around the time of Christ, recorded one Passover where he said 2,700,000 people descended upon the city. That may be a, a, an enlarged estimation, but still you get the idea. It was a huge group of people, and people are whispering and talking about Jesus. Do you think he's going to come? Now, six days in chapter 12, verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. And so the first thing to note there in verse 1 is the time marker of this little feast that they throw together and uh, have in celebration and in honor of Christ. This occurred six days before the Passover, and according to John, it occurred before the triumphal entry, you know, Palm Sunday. And so, the way they counted their days and all of that, it's very possible that this was on Friday night that they gathered together, uh, maybe Saturday, but Friday or Saturday, they get together and have this uh, meal together. Now, this is of note because in Matthew and Mark, uh, this particular event seems to take place, at least the way they place it, 
they place it around and near the events that occurred two days before the Passover. And so for some, there's a little bit of confusion here, you know, saying, well, here John says it happened six days before Matthew and Mark include it in and around the events that took place two days before. But I think there's a very clear reason for that. One is, as I've mentioned before, these gospel writers, their main goal isn't a strict chronology of the life and events of Christ. No, their main emphasis is uh, they've, they've chosen different focal points. Uh, Matthew focusing on Jesus as the king, Jesus as the man of action, the servant, uh, Savior. John, Jesus is God. This is the emphasis that he is placing. And Matthew and Mark, they really don't say that this event did occur two days before, but they just record it after events and near events that they say those events did occur two days before the Passover. And so I think their reason for including it a little bit later in the timeline and story is because the events that occurred in this house were the events that led Judas to really ultimately and finally betray Christ. And so it's helpful to show that story near the actual betrayal so that you can see the motivation behind it. And so it's more of a liberty that the author is taking to communicate the bigger story and the big picture. And uh, so not as much of a strict chronology, although John here is giving us the chronology when he says that this event actually did occur six days before the Passover. Now, what occurs is interesting. First of all, he comes to Bethany and Lazarus is there and uh, they give him a dinner, verse 2. Now, the other gospels tell us that this dinner was held in the house of a man named Simon, whom they called the leper. And so what we can estimate is that Simon had had leprosy, but had been healed by Jesus because more than likely a leper who was still a leper wouldn't get a large turnout of people coming over to his home uh, to eat lest they become ceremonially unclean and so uh, you can sort of put it together and realize that this is a wonderful feast to honor Christ because you know Simon there's the host he'd been healed of leprosy perhaps but more importantly Lazarus was there who had been raised from the dead and for that his sisters, Martha and Mary, are very glad. And so Martha is serving, Lazarus is dining, and they're there just simply honoring Christ. And I think it's worth mentioning that Jesus here is worthy of their celebration. He's worth celebrating. They're just having a wonderful feast, serving him, worshiping him, to honor him for the great things that he has done. And I think in this we get a slight picture of the future glorified state of God's children. That is, after all, what Lazarus was designed to produce, a, a picture, if you will, of the future and coming resurrection. And so when you see Lazarus here, you see feasting with Christ, you see serving Christ, and you see the worship of Christ. And these are all elements that will follow us into that glorified eternal state. Now, in the middle of all of this, as Martha's serving and Lazarus is reclining, it says in verse 3 that Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. But the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. 
So Mary comes in, and, and this is the centerpiece of this story. She takes this pure nard. This is a very expensive ointment that would have been acquired from northern India at that time. And uh, it says that it's a pound of it. It's quite a bit, and it's expensive. Now, we have to sort of define what expensive is because expensive perfume today is a lot cheaper than expensive perfume was back then. Here you have something that in verse 5 we discover could have been sold for 300 denarii, which is 300 days wages. And so what that means is, you know, once you subtract Sabbaths and other holy days, 300 days would equal a full year uh, salary for a common laborer in Israel. And so this is worth quite a bit of money. And Mary takes it and breaks it and anoints Jesus with it. She anoints the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And I think the first thing I wanted to demonstrate or for us to see about this wonderful act of worship and devotion is simply that Mary was trusting Jesus. You know, in that culture, to have something that was worth that much sitting on your shelf, in one sense, it was your future security. If you were to break a leg or become disabled and, and you know, unable to work and provide for yourself, uh, you would find great security in thinking about that. You know, what would happen if I were to? She could have thought about that that uh, ointment and how much it was worth and thought about selling it and being able to provide uh, for herself. And so I think what you're seeing here is this woman saying, I'm transferring my trust from this ointment and security there into a new place and it's with Christ. My security is with him. Just wonderful trust. But also we see that here she is at the feet of Jesus, just adoring him, just worshiping him. And as a side note, Mary, of course, as you read of her life, is quite often at the feet of Christ, learning of him in Luke 10, praying to him in John 11, and here worshiping him in John chapter 12. And the whole house is filled with the fragrance of this perfume, and that, that worship was noticed. But Judas Iscariot, verse 4, one of his disciples who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And so Judas comes up with this very spiritual sounding statement. He says, hey, why don't we take this? We should have taken this. We should have sold it for a year's wage and we could have given the money to the poor. Uh, but what John records from his perspective now years later, as he says, Judas did not say this because he cared about the poor. He said this because he was a thief and used to steal from the money bag. Now, at the moment that he said it, none of the disciples had a clue that Judas was a thief. In fact, to them, it sounded like a very spiritual, uh, well-thought-out position. So much so that the other Gospels tell us that they then chimed in and said the exact same thing, which I think for us highlights the importance of being careful about who we're listening to. You never know what the motive is behind a person who is sounding so spiritual and sounds so good. 
And so Judas comes up with this plan, but Jesus said in verse 7, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now the other Gospels tell us that Jesus declared that she would become famous as a result of this act of devotion, as a result of the act of this worship. In Matthew 26, 13, Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And so Jesus says, you know, leave her alone. She's anointing me for the day of my burial. You know, Matthew says that she poured the oil on his head. John records that she poured it on his feet. Jesus says here, She's anointing me, my body, for the day of my burial. She anointed his head. She anointed his feet. She anointed his body uh, and prepared him for burial. She was in advance mourning over Christ. There was an intuition uh, that she had received. She she was very in tune with Christ. And he says to, to them, he says, Because the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, this is an interesting statement from Jesus. What he says to them is, listen, I'm only here for so long. She could not worship me like this. In just a couple of months, I'll be ascended at the right hand of the Father. And so she has a a little window of time to pour out her devotion towards me in this way. And I think in like manner, we could say at the same time that we have a little window of time. Philippians 3 verse 10 talks about the fellowship of his sufferings. Uh, We have a small window of time when it comes to our eternal life in which we can enjoy Christ in that way and partake in the fellowship of his sufferings. Uh, That day though, that window will soon be passed and we'll enter into eternity with him if we are his children and we will never again have an opportunity to partake in the fellowship of of his sufferings, going through trial and difficulty uh, with him and for him. And so uh, Jesus announces, let her alone. This is beautiful worship. And so I think it's worth mentioning here that Jesus receives this extreme devotion. I think that's an important note because I think oftentimes we want to be balanced people, but there is one area in all of life, and it's not our career, It's not our children, it's not our friendships, it's not our extracurricular activities. It's in every area of life we should seek for balance. We don't want to be extreme in any of those areas I just mentioned. But there's one area that we can be extreme, and it's in our devotion to Christ. Now when the large crowd, verse 9, of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, They came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now the next day, verse 12, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, this is uh, a quote from Psalm 118. It's a shout of uh, praise. The word Hosanna literally means save now, but it had come to mean 
just a, a shout of rejoicing or a shout of praise, just a generic kind of term. And so they're shouting these blessings at uh, the Lord on him who is coming in the Lord's name. He, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Not realizing that Jesus actually came as the name of the Lord. And Jesus found, verse 14, a young donkey and sat on it. Just as, as it is written out of Zechariah, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now this is interesting to us because here you have Jesus doing something that is so different from the rest of his earthly ministry. There were various times where he would tell people not to broadcast the great miracle that he had performed. Uh, there were times that he would sort of slink back into obscurity or into the wilderness in order to avoid uh, the large-scale adulation of the people. There were times that he would reject that kind of attention. But here, he hops on this donkey, rides into Jerusalem at the, at the time that the Passover is occurring and the crowds have swelled, and he receives their praises, and we ask ourselves why. And one reason that he did is because it tells us that he was sitting on this donkey, just as it is written in verse 15, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He was fulfilling the word of his father, fulfilling the prophetic word, but always obedient to the father's will. I think the other part of this is that this was the exact time that Christ was to be revealed. I think Daniel chapter 9, the prophecy of the 77s or 490 year period that Daniel received a prophecy of, after 483 years from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, this event was to occur. And here Jesus on the exact day and at the exact moment of that prophecy is entering onto the scene. And his disciples, verse 16, did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done these signs, or this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And so Jesus now is thrust completely onto the public scene, signifying that his hour has now come. And we'll pick it up next time, beginning in verse 20. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.